Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Has the news in 2021 already made it feel like the bottom is falling out of your world? Well, what won't help that is your own bottom falling out of anything, so you may as well pop it into something comfortable, and while you're on the edge of your seat watching the state of things, at least that seat will feel real, real snug. British boxers make classic and crazily comfy underwear and loungewear, from knickers to slippers, dressing gowns to PJs, boxers, face masks and, um, even dog bandanas. Well, dog's got a lounge too, right? British boxers manufacture all their products with minimal waste, all environmentally friendly-like, and pay all their workers properly for creating them too. Basically, they're a properly nice, ethically sound bunch, and my own butt would sing their praises, but let's be fair, no one wants to hear that on a podcast. Check out their range at British-Boxers.com, and as a listener to the Partly Political Broadcast, if you use the code PARPOLBRO10 when you check out, you'll get a sweet 10% off too. Yes, that's right, I'm now in the pockets of Big Pyjama, and honestly, I couldn't be more comfortable. I'll keep this brief, because that's also what they make, so head to British-Boxers.com, because not everything has to be pants in a bad way. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that, like the government, says it's done everything it can to minimise suffering, but at the same time still insists on releasing weekly episodes, so is obviously lying. I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week I am heartened by how we all thought post-Brexit relations between the EU and UK would be frosty, and yet it turns out it's so friendly that they aren't even willing to trade jabs. With so much of life on planet Earth facing extinction in our increasingly unstable future, it was lovely to see that just as Brexiteers were teetering on the brink of destruction via their own Pyrrhic victory, the EU insisted on using its collective might to step in and save them from having to find something else to blame for their lives being ultimately disappointing. Who knew that the only type of nationalism not accepted by those who repeatedly vote for it as much as possible was that of vaccines? You'd think they'd all be for something that says it cures dangerous foreign bodies, but maybe they got confused. And before we talk about this any further, I should quickly mention that it's very hard to remember in these times of increasingly tribal politics that it's very possible and in fact sensible to have far more nuanced views about the current situation we're in than just deciding one side is betterer than the other and that one side is the baddies and the other one is the virtuous freedom providers of all things bountiful and lovely and have never even returned a library book late and not just because libraries don't exist anymore. And last week is case in point. 
last week showed it was perfectly reasonable to say, wow, the EU are massive terrible dickheads and the UK government are some of the worst people in existence, and for both statements to be completely true. The EU had a deal with AstraZeneca for 300 million doses of Covid vaccine, but due to production problems, were likely to only get a quarter of that. A bit like when the EU pledged to help Greece and then only did a bit, but not really at all. Having never made a vaccine myself, despite a certainty that some of the older items in the back of my fridge have grown very close, I imagine it's pretty fiddly making the things. You know, as threading DNA does require a very tiny needle and steady hand. So, of course, there are currently supply and demand issues on account of everyone in the goddamn world needing two of the things. So, President of the European Commission and Umbrella Pharmaceuticals employee Ursula von der Leyen demanded that some of the supply made in the UK come to the EU instead. AstraZeneca said contracts mean that they couldn't, and then someone near the Commission end decided the smartest thing to do would be to stop people in Northern Ireland getting any. It felt a bit like finding out your mate wasn't going to lend you that video game they promised, so to get revenge you went and punched the arm of the younger sibling of someone you used to go to school with but didn't know anymore. Only a true idiot would think that vaccine nationalism is an idea worth entertaining when the coronavirus has already tanked up more air miles than the most avid of frequent flyers and hasn't ever filled in a customs form or handed over its sandwich. But for a brief period, Article 16 was invoked by the EU anyway, meaning they opted for the last resort first, like a trade version of shoot and then ask questions later. Northern Irish First Minister and flipbook accident Arlene Foster said it was an incredibly hostile act, which must be annoying when that's usually her party's playbook tactic. The Prime Minister and scrapings off the side of an old ship, Boris Johnson, informed von der Leyen that he had grave concerns, which I assume was about the EU's decision to suspend part of the Brexit deal agreement on Northern Ireland, but could also be because there's now over 100,000 dead in the UK from Covid and he was confiding that we're running out of space to put them all somewhere. It was probably quite a shock to Johnson that the EU were able to do such a thing as it was so far into the Northern Ireland agreement that was rushed through in a matter of days last year and there's every chance he'd never made it that far, especially if that page didn't have his name on it to make it seem like something he'd find important. Not only that, but it must have been quite a blow to be reminded yet again that Northern Ireland is a country in the UK and not just an umbrella term for things he didn't have to pay attention to. The World Health Organization criticised the EU, saying that their attempts to hoard the vaccine could set a worrying trend. Like, you know, the Western world not being able to equally buy all the vaccine for themselves, so they can together deprive third world countries of it entirely. Very quickly, the EU U-turned on the Article 16 idea and blamed it on a misjudgment. But as Irish Taoiseach and your tired, tired dad, Michael Martin, said, the disaster had already happened and it had played into the hands of EU haters and shown up that despite all promises for no hard border in Northern Ireland, it turns out, as anyone who'd actually read the agreement already knew, that they can get one within minutes if their divorced parents get miffed with each other. There are now calls to re-examine the Northern Ireland agreement, or in Boris Johnson and it seems Ursula von der Leyen's case, examine it for the first time. So, a stupid-ass move from the Commission, but not at all helped by the Prime Minister's comments in the middle of it about how lucky it was that we were no longer part of the EU's vaccine rollout. And he's right, as that would mean that all of ours would be stuck in lorries somewhere in Kent. It is pretty grim for anyone to think that anywhere can be patriotic about vaccines, especially when Johnson is far less keen when people point out that actually what Britain has been best at is the death toll. Figures of deaths by COVID-19 reached over 100,000 last week and Johnson took to the podium with his hair looking like a very ill cat had just coughed it up and mumbled with all the sincerity of a DJ that's been asked to pause their set so they can ask someone to move their car that he offered his deepest condolences to everyone who's lost a loved one. Which we know isn't true as Johnson has specialised in purposefully losing loved ones for quite some time and claiming deniability if they manage to track him down and ask if he's their dad. 
The Prime Minister's now refused six times to meet a group of bereaved families of those who died from Covid, despite having promised to. But maybe Johnson is being considerate by avoiding them, as he's realised that they've already suffered enough. Johnson said it was very hard to compute the sorrow contained in the grim statistic of 100,000 deaths, which is the sort of thing a robot might say if it was told to emulate human emotion based on input of abstract pictures of material goods. But the most galling was his insistence that the government had done everything they could to minimise loss and suffering, which is definitely not true, unless he means of his friends' financial situations. Well, OK, maybe it is true, but we're unfortunate enough to have a government who's doing everything they could, is giving their pals lots of money and causing more loss and suffering, and maybe anything else is just outside of their skill set. The past year of boasting of shaking hands with people in hospital, not bothering to turn up to Cobra meetings and opening schools for a whole day during the middle of one of the endless waves, among so many other things, means that Johnson may as well have stood at the podium and said he was sorry if you felt that you had died. Johnson has also still been hammering home the message that schools are safe, despite then saying that they won't reopen till March because it risks the spread of coronavirus. Great, so they're definitely safe, but they're also definitely not safe. Or maybe they are safe, but only if you don't put anyone in them and just let the occasional pigeon wander in. Maybe they should reopen schools as soon as possible, but just, you know, to air them out and nothing else. The Institute of Fiscal Studies says that pupils in the UK could stand to lose an average of £40,000 each in lifetime earnings due to lost time in school thanks to Covid, which is a shame as they'd really notice that here out of the salary from the jobs that don't exist that they now can't get. One education think tank is suggesting that pupils be allowed to repeat a year, but let's face it, no one wants to do 2020 to 2021 again. That's just cruel and they'd only have to stay at home throughout, so it seems pointless. It's now taken over a year to consider closing travel corridors to the UK and it's only now that anyone trying to leave the UK will have to declare a valid reason for doing so. So I'm hoping that announcing I'd like to leave this leper island please for survival purposes will count. Of course, some still believe that actually the government have done everything they could and that everything up till now has been the public's fault. But as a normal public type person myself, I spent quite some time googling just how I could go about closing borders and it just kept telling me how to make quilts which I don't think would have helped. Nearly 9 million people in the UK have now had their first vaccine jab and all elderly residents of care homes have been offered one, something Johnson called a crucial milestone, though again he could have been referring to his finding out that care homes actually exist. It does feel massively condescending to claim the achievement of getting care home residents the offer of a jab when by failing to protect them last year there are just a lot fewer people to vaccinate. Right now, there are three approved vaccines in the UK and two more potentially on their way, including the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is 66% effective, presumably as the name suggests, because that's the equivalent of two Prime Ministers working together. It does seem like everyone's making vaccines, but I guess we are stuck in lockdown and those without kids don't really have anything else to do. Infection rates are coming down, which is good, and so are hospital admissions, but worryingly the vaccines could actually be less effective against the new South African variant, which has now been found in various places around England, but it wouldn't be a South African variant if it didn't like to travel. It should be easily tracked by finding people who keep talking about how many brews they've had and insisting on holding a bry despite the weather. Health Secretary and talking nerf bullet Matt Hancock have said they have to come down hard on the South African variant because he can only talk in middle-aged man sex now. He is, however, very positive about everything and said that he gets very excited about every photograph of someone being vaccinated that he gets sent. So I think that means he's given his consent to receive prick pics. He's also very optimistic about summer holidays, but again, he didn't specify what year. Cabinet Office Minister and 6 out of 10 of the pictures Google brings up if you type unusual rash, Michael Gove, said that unlike in the EU, there'll be no interruption of the UK's vaccine supply, which I think means is a guarantee that it won't have to have a conversation with him. However, during the interview, Gove's cat interrupted him and tried to knock over his laptop, but I guess they do say that felines can really sense evil. 
So, depending on which side you're on, either the EU showed their true side by blocking vaccine trade or by apologising, they showed that they can be more responsible than Johnson's government, who must have watched the Italian Prime Minister resign last week, citing that it was over Covid deaths and assumed it was because he hadn't really let there be enough. The fact is, in reality, both the EU and the UK are really shit. Really, really shit. Currently, as grown-ups pretending we have a democratic choice in anything at all, we may as well just save our energy blaming other people and resolve that we are just part of an endless juggling of least worst options. I mean, the Conservatives, for example, are greed-driven psychopaths, but that doesn't mean you have to like the opposition, who include MPs like Shadow Secretary of Health and Lost Beano character Jonathan Ashworth, who took to all the news channels to call the government responsible for the high death rate thanks to the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, but when asked if his party had opposed it at the time, he had to sheepishly say no. It feels no wonder that, again, the Conservatives are several points ahead in the polls, not just because most of their voters would really like to see more people in Britain dead, but also because when the Speaker of the Commons introduced Labour leader and unused Nespresso machine, Keir Starmer, during Prime Minister's questions as the virtual leader of the opposition, it's hard to imagine he meant only because he was live-streaming from his home. I mean, what sort of opposition is it when Starmer wrote a piece in the worst punishment for paper after toilet and folded fortune tellers, the Daily Mail, vowing to get every child back to school? Yes, we know, but maybe not right now, as I don't know if you're aware, Keir, but there's a bit of a virus going on. Aside from just seemingly parroting the least constructive opinions of the time, there's no way Labour are going to keep the youth vote if you kill them all off first. Really, why do any of us bother? If 100,000 people dying is it enough to make everyone demand something much, much better, then really, what will? What is it that matters to British people enough to get them to want change? The pubs are already closed, so it can't be that. No one can go to the football. Ugh, someone's going to have to turn off the internet, aren't they? Right, OK, I'll get some shears, but only after you've listened to this episode. In other news, Boris Johnson visited Scotland to supposedly try and strengthen the union in the same way you might try and sway someone to get a pet by running around their living room shitting in all the plants. Johnson insisted that independence is irrelevant to most Scots and that most people just want to beat the pandemic because it hasn't occurred to him that the latter might be more possible if the former occurred. The only reason he thinks it's irrelevant to Scottish people is because it's irrelevant to him and he once asked Michael Gove what he thought about independence and he didn't reply as he was too busy building a saliva cocoon. The Prime Minister very boldly stated that we don't know what the point of another independence referendum would be, but it's a bit like how if you can't work out which one of your friends is a prick that no one likes, then it's definitely you. The SNP currently have their own internal issues to deal with, with First Minister and background extra in Top of the Pops 2, Nicola Sturgeon, being investigated over her handling of complaints about former SNP leader and blobfish Alex Salmond. Sturgeon has been accused of misleading Holyrood and planning to take down Salmond, as well as having colluded with him, both of which the First Minister says are not true. But if she didn't conspire or collude, doesn't that just mean that she did nothing at all, which is just as bad? Meanwhile, SNP MP and concertinaed Sue Pollard, Joanna Cherry, has been sacked from the Westminster frontbench team after what the party said was a reshuffle, but it did happen after Cherry supported transphobic campaigns online. It's a very strange stance to be passionately pro-your country, having an identity that differs from what it's told it should be, but are hypocritically anti-people feeling the same about themselves. The British government are applying to formally join the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership of 11 countries, because being over 8,000 miles away from the Pacific Ocean, it obviously makes sense. Like me here in London, joining the next door group for somewhere in the depths of Siberia in the hope that I might be able to borrow some sugar. There hasn't been any sort of referendum for joining this, which you'd think might enrage Brexiteers, and the government are refusing to publish any documentation about how we might economically benefit from it, so I can only assume it's because International Trade Secretary and Jelly Mould List Trust wants to go on holiday there to take overly filtered pictures for social media of her looking amazed at how everyday items work. 
Trust says that Asia-Pacific countries will provide big markets, so that's good for when we need to buy big things such as our no- giant novelty pencils or a headband for Matt Hancock. One thing that may be a hurdle to the deal is an ongoing dispute with China, as the government are allocating a special visa for Hong Kong residents that want to emigrate to the UK after China imposed their new security law last year. I can't think of anything more inviting for citizens of Hong Kong than the offer of leaving an authoritarian rule with an archaic and draconian security law just to arrive in the UK where it's nearly the same but with more rain and tons of Covid. In other Asia-Pacific affairs, Milkshake Duck of Peacekeeping and Burmese State Councillor Aung San Suu Kyi has been arrested by the military after they declared last year's election results fraudulent. Johnson very quickly condemned the coup on Twitter, saying that the vote of the people must be respected. So that likely means he'll suggest to the Myanmar military to make it look like the people have got what they wanted, but in reality, there'll be a large airstrip full of lorries and absolutely no one will be able to travel. In other news, the government had to scrap a sexist stay-at-home poster as it showed four houses with only women doing childcare and cleaning, while the only image of a man had him lying on the sofa. It was criticised for showing a 1950s view of women, but I guess there is also a chance that the Prime Minister just asked them to model it on his own life for a sense of realism and all of his various different families that he's abandoned. The government's climate change advisers have criticised Housing and Planning Secretary and holder of the most slappable face of the 21st century, Robert Jenrick, for allowing a new coal mine to be opened in Cumbria. A government spokesperson refused to acknowledge the polluting effect it might have and instead said it had diversified local prospects, presumably as residents could now choose to get breathing difficulties from either Covid or coal dust. Well, I suppose if you are going to consistently dig the country into a deeper and deeper pit, you may as well make the most out of it. A journalist has been arrested for taking photos of a protest at Napier Barracks and charged with criminal damage for trying to show that around 400 asylum seekers were being kept in a veritable detention camp, which, as we know, is criminal because without the pictures, we wouldn't see how awful it was and it might ruin our tea or something. It is worrying levels of censorship that someone can be arrested for doing their job, though I suppose that could be seen as offensive to a government who rarely do theirs. The protests saw windows broken and a building being set on fire, which Home Secretary and Human Permafrost Pretty Patel called offensive to taxpayers of the country. Actually, if anything, these places were without proper ventilation, which has led to Covid outbreaks, and no proper heating, so as a taxpayer, I'm pleased the protesters made improvements to the poultry setting. Patel said the sites had accommodated soldiers in the past, and it was wrong to say they weren't good enough for asylum seekers, something I bet she'd also say about a prisoner of war camp. Lastly, what happens if you take a tin of spam and regularly water it with piss and shout swears at it, and former editor of the Daily Mail, Paul Dacra, is being positioned as the new chair of TV regulator Ofcom, despite him historically being against all possible regulation of the media. Then again, I suppose who better to know exactly how to spot a breach of standards than someone who used to do it every single five minutes, and maybe Maybe the Ofcom staff will be able to quickly spot what needs to be fined based on how much their boss is enjoying it. Drooping eye bag and champion failure, Chris Grayling has tabled an amendment to the Environment Bill in order to save hedgehogs. So yes, there is every chance within a month he'll have handed £35 million to someone who's never seen a hedgehog before to place a plate of cheese and pineapple cocktail sticks into a shelter in the middle of the M5. I can only assume Grayling is fond of hedgehogs because they embrace having to work with pricks. And wife of former Prime Minister and collage of bits cut out of the index bits of old catalogues, Samantha Cameron, has said that her fashion business has been badly hit by Brexit. So, I have to admit, I take it all back. It turns out there are some sunlit uplands. 
Hey, hey, Parpol Brods, um, how is it all going? Sideways? Yes, that's probably right. Um, I came very close to trying to make a point on the show uh, this week, but I couldn't quite manage it. It's very hard, isn't it? I'm genuinely really livid and upset that the death toll is so high, and at the same time, I'm just so exhausted by it all and in need of watching and reading things that have nothing to do with it because dwelling on it is really overwhelming. Um, also, I want to be surprised that this hasn't brought mass protests and call for change, but we're all stuck indoors not wanting to get ill, um, and the country wasn't remotely bothered by 130,000 people dying from austerity and just blamed that on people not being smart enough to be born rich. So I guess, depressingly, this feels uh, much the same. So easy to be apathetic and distance yourself from it, which is really frightening, isn't it, I think? I sort of always assumed that this sort of thing would haunt me, and yet here I am perfectly capable of switching the news off and just focusing on why my daughter is trying to colour in the radiator or some other sort of small world problem. I think, I was thinking about it, I think the key is that once this is all over, we just need to make the government as accountable as possible. We need to bring the anger back when we can go outside, not just shout at the telly, and then we should all gather around Westminster and do something peaceful but very haunting for Boris Johnson. And I can't work out whether that's sort of dressing up with respectful masks of those who died during the pandemic um, or just dressing up as his kids and frightening him that they've all come home at once. Uh, I don't know. Um, it'd be nice to have an idea about something that could be done. Uh, I haven't got one, though. Uh, that's not what I'm good at. I was totally incensed by all the kids on Reddit taking down the stock market last week and I spent a whole day spending a few quid on a few stocks in efforts to be part of the moment. Um, but then I sort of realised I probably just wasted money being part of the problem. I've got a horrible feeling it's only been a few weeks before I'm explaining to my wife, yes, I'm aware our daughter is starving, but if Blockbuster ever come back, we'll be rich. I think I've realised that most people just want it to be easy uh, for crappy things to deal with themselves and are well up for taking down the system if you can do it via an app on your phone. So I guess the trick to all of this is finding an app that could get the government arrested. Any ideas? I bet Matt Hancock would download it in a second. Anyway, once again, here I am with all the jokes and absolutely zero solutions, but I am very glad that you're here too, and hopefully uh, this podcast provides some respite by being exactly the same as the news, only with swears in. Imagine if the news just had swears in it, that's all they need. I mean, if every single time they had to say, the fucking Prime Minister said, I'd feel so much better about everything, wouldn't you? Um, thank you this week to Christine, who donated to the uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro account, and to LJ, who wrote a lovely, lovely review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you tons for that. Very much made my day, uh, one of the days last week. I'll never remember which one, as they are always all the same. Um, so, you know the drill. You two can donate if you want to at the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, join the patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, or pop a quid via the ACAR supporter button if you would like to support this show. Or you can do a nice review like LJ, spread the word about the podcast in general, as many of you do, or just invent an app that will get all the government arrested. And frankly, I will take that. That is definitely the best idea. Can someone do that? Please do that. Not much admin this week, but as I've plugged every week for the last few, um, obviously the British Boxers sponsorship is still going. Buy pants from them with the Parpol Bro 10 code for 10% off. Um, that sort of 10% off money-wise is not just going to be like a big hole in your pants. Um, and then there is the Leicester Comedy Festival live online show this Saturday, uh, which is going to be just like this, but you'll be able to see my face, which might ruin it for you. Um, I've got two great guests lined up for that now as well. Uh, local Leicestershire-based activists, uh, which are Tim Morton, who runs a social housing campaign, and artist Abby Harrison, who set up a food bank from her house which is amazing um, it's an amazing thing to do um, I'm going to be interviewing both of them there'll be a chance for you to ask them questions me questions plus there'll be all the usual jokes about miserable things and I'm going to do descriptions of all the Leicestershire based MPs sound fun? damn straight it does uh, tickets are £5 and if enough of you come I'll probably donate most of that uh, possibly to Abby's food bank if they will take it but not if only if three of you buy tickets that would just be sort of embarrassing handing over like tenner when it don't embarrass me does blackmailing people work as a way of marketing sales? I don't know. Don't 
embarrass me though um, anyway 4.30pm this Saturday online you can get tickets at the Leicester Comedy Festival website and of course there's a link in the podcast blurb too because I'm on the case people I'm on the case also uh, two quick things one is I'm currently reading uh, several time podcast guest uh, Emily Kenway's new book The Truth About Modern Slavery which is wow it is a fascinating and eye opening read Um, Emily's going to be the guest on next week's show talking about it but I would totally recommend getting a copy of that um, as soon as you can it is a fascinating insight into how issues are framed for political benefit there's just been several moments where I've gone oh oh god that is totally what they did and I totally missed it Um, second thing um, is that one of you nice listeners uh, Kim, hello Kim, sent me an email from her MP um, a few weeks back where he'd replied to an email she'd sent about supporting key workers in a tangible way um, by seemingly just copy and pasting some nonsense and it's the vaguest, emptiest thing I've ever read. Um, Now Kim, I'm very sorry I haven't replied to this yet uh, but I am wondering what to do with it. My MP also sends equally hollow replies and it's made me sort of not bother sending him any more emails which I think is the point. Shall I collate a load of MPs' replies and get people to record reading them in a sarcastic way? Shall I try and work out a way uh, to get MPs to reply properly? Um, Should we try different tactics, different fonts to send them in? I sort of feel like there's something we should do with this. Um, I don't know, but any ideas, send them my way via the usual methods. I think we can have fun with this, while also possibly provoking an actual response. Um, Send all your ideas in. uh, Also, make that app uh, and get the government arrested. Thank you. Okay, on this week's show, I am speaking to Ramya Jaidev at the Windrush Lives campaign. And oh, it's a good one uh, and it's a long one. It is also one that will make you very angry. Uh, Just be prepared. Maybe be near an open window so you can safely throw things out of it in frustration. Oh, wait, no, wait, hang on. Not if your window faces the street or a neighbour's garden. Okay, I haven't thought this through. I haven't thought this through, but just throw something somewhere safely. Anyway, um, there's also uh, some stuff in the middle that you don't need, but I'll put it there anyway. You're welcome. Nothing sums up the past decade and a bit of Conservative governments quite like the hostile environment policy. There's no need for a rain-drenched island fuelled on inherent racism that has cabinet members such as Michael Gove, whose very mug could ward off the larger ships, to make this environment any more hostile, unless the secret plan is to sell filming rights to use it for Hollywood sci-fi dystopias and absolutely nothing else. Yet the hostile environment policy has now existed since 2012, and while on one hand the government would have you believe this is the best country there is, it's also working really, really hard to make sure no one can see it to check if they're wrong. One of the myriad of bleak outcomes of the policy was the Windrush scandal, where it emerged in 2017 that a number of black British citizens who travelled over from Commonwealth countries before 1973 to fill post-war staff shortages in some of our most important sectors, like the NHS, had since been wrongfully deported or detained. By wrongfully, I mean that the Home Office fully intended to do it, but they got caught out and had to pretend it was actually an admin error. You know, like how you or I might accidentally send an email before we finish typing it, or double book an appointment. Yes, exactly like that, only it directly led to completely and utterly ruining people's lives, which makes me really wonder if you can be that careless with Google Calendar, then you probably shouldn't be in charge of things like the safety of other humans. Many who had a right to stay in Britain but whose documentation had been lost by the Home Office were then deemed to be illegal immigrants and lost their jobs, right to healthcare, bank accounts and driving licences by the very same people who lost their documentation. Lots were placed in detention centres and some were deported to countries they hadn't been to since they were kids. And the government vaguely apologised by firing then Home Secretary and face drawn on a hand, Amber Rudd. Meanwhile, the person responsible for the hostile environment policy, then Prime Minister and life-sized cardboard cutout of herself, Theresa May, mumbled some things and carried on as she was. 
It's now been three years since the Windrush scandal and the majority of victims whose lives were torn apart haven't received an iota of support from the Home Office. Even though current regeneration of the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has promised they would get the compensation they deserve. Now, actually thinking about it, coming from she who would have signed up for the Spanish Inquisition if she would have been so appalled that they came from Europe, that could be why Patel is trying her best to make sure absolutely no one gets anything. Will the Windrush generation ever see justice when the person in charge of that happening thinks justice is the death penalty and anything else is a waste of time? And how likely is it that a scandal like this will happen again when the next steps in the hostile environment policy are likely to involve barbed wire around the coast and rebranding the hospitality industry to be known as the no-go-away sector? Well, this week I spoke to Ramya Jaidev at the Windrush Lives campaign. Ramya and her colleagues formed the advocacy campaign to give Windrush victims and their families the help and support that they need to claim compensation and seek legal advice. Ramya explained to me about what Windrush Lives do, just how problematic it is that the same people who took away people's citizenship status are now the ones supposedly sending them reparations, and just how worrying it is that the Home Office currently feel one step away from writing Keep Out on the White Cliffs of Dover. It was great to speak to Ramya, but... As you'll hear, what she has to say is pretty bleak and frustrating, um, but obviously very, very important to hear about. Her final point is definitely one of my favourite bits of advice I've had on this show too, uh, so uh, enjoy that. I'll talk more about it all afterwards, but the link to the fundraiser for Windrush scandal victim Anthony Williams is in the podcast blurb, so if you're moved by what he's had to endure um, that Ramya tells us all about, then please, please do help out. Here is Ramya. Hi, Ramya. Thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast today. Um, the Windrush scandal happened th- three years ago, which is um, frightening to think that it's, uh, time has gone by so quickly. Um, and in that three years, how many people who were affected have received adequate or any compensation for what they or their family members went through? Because I know this week the Home Office have just said they've offered or given eight million pounds of compensation which this is won't be able to see but your facial expression uh as i've asked you that is fascinating and so has has any of that got to claimants have people been adequately compensated uh so no <laughs> um, the, the re- <laughs> that's a fairly straightforward question really um the reason i was making the face was that um yeah so you're right they've put out uh, media materials that say they've paid or offered and the the or offered is doing a lot of work because if you look at the statistics um that run up to the end of december 2020 um which they always publish one month um behind the amount paid reflected there is 2.9 million that's what they'd paid as at the end of december and i always find that those statistics although there are a lot of problems with them and um there are lot of deficiencies in terms of what they choose to report but those statistics are much more reliable than any of the press materials that um, the home office puts out just because you can look at the statistics and look at what they what each thing is supposed to represent and get a fairly clear idea of what category at least they're talking about so the difference between the 2.9 million paid at the end of December and what is now claimed to be 8 million that tells you that that all offered part is doing a lot of the work there. And um, that is sadly something that I think anyone who's dealt with the Home Office over a long period will know. Um, It's not a department that's particularly well known for its precision or for sort of rigorous accounting um, for what it does. And, you know, this is one of the problems you get with that. So, 
2.9 million paid at the end of December to 303 claimants, not claimants, to 303 claims. Um, and each claimant can have more than one claim. So that is actually quite important. Right. Um, and you can, at the same statistics, will tell you that it's something like 1.7, um, not 1.7, something like 1,700 odd applications have been received. So you can see that as a percentage of that, it's pretty pathetic, really. The pace at which this thing is going, the pace at which claims are being paid out is, is absolutely shocking. Um, and that 2.9 million to 303 claimants is actually slightly less than 10 grand each. Wow. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so when we talk about adequacy, adequacy is made up of more than one thing, and we'll come back to this later, but 10 grand as a sum of money to be paid for losing access to employment for anything up to 10 years, severe trauma, um, not only of just losing your status and everything that comes with that, but all the ancillary things like losing access to medical um, services, losing access to the NHS, potentially losing benefits, just being ostracized. One of the um, really sort of unexplored areas with this is that when people lose access to, to employment and when they think the home office is after them, they withdraw from society. And we know several claimants, and actually some of them have done a lot of media themselves, who spent four or five years effectively living in the shadows. It's a kind of trauma that is not at all captured by the compensation scheme, but it's not even acknowledged by the Home Office that the, the process of going through this and even the process of fighting for compensation is its own nightmare. So just because they've resolved their status now, it doesn't mean that they're all fine and happy to kind of move on with life. A lot of people are suffering very severe effects from what they've had to go through. So against all of that, an average of 10 grand each, I mean, you tell me, does that sound adequate? <laughs> and, you know, the Home Office is always fond of, um, whenever they're questioned about this, they're quite fond of saying, oh, well, we paid at least one claim that was over 150 grand. To which my response is, if there are 50 people and you paid one of them 150 grand, that means the other 49 have got to split whatever's left yeah. of the headline sum that you're saying. So that means actually the average is even less. Um, yeah, it's a real concern. It's really upset. I mean, one of the things, because one of the big announcements they had at the end of last year was, oh, we've increased, was it the minimum payment for impact on life to, was to 10 impact grand? Life, yeah. But I think, as you mentioned, what I hadn't realised, I hadn't realised that they could claim uh, not only for sort of loss of earnings, but also on impact of life. But the impact of life is meant to cover the trauma that you have been through for all these years and everything you've gone through. And it, it doesn't seem very much, I mean, the fact that it was less than 10 grand until December, yeah, you know, that, that it seems pretty insulting, really. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big part of when you talk about adequacy, um, that's a big part of it. Uh, the the thing that claimants, um, the thing that claimants most commonly say is that they absolutely need to get paid for everything that happened. But but in terms of compensating them from what they for what they've had to go through, they've been degraded, basically, um, not only by being told that a, I don't believe that you went through all this, so I'm not going to give you this money. But B, even if you did go through all of that, have 10 grand. So that that kind of puts a value on what they've gone through, which is extremely degrading. Um, but yes, as you say, they have increased the amounts um, at the end of December. We haven't lived with this for long enough to know how effective that's going to be. 
everything that we've seen so far suggests that although they've increased the tariff amounts broadly tenfold for each category, um, people are still stuck at the lower levels of that. So although they've increased, for example, level three from, I think it was 4,000 to 40,000, we're now worried that more and more people are just going to get level one and level two payments. So they're never actually going to see that money that's in theory promised. Um, and, the, you know, it, it is always hard, I think, to quantify trauma, to quantify this sort of thing in monetary terms. It, it is very difficult. And I'm not going to pretend that, you know, it's something that that is extremely easily done and, you know, they're making an absolute pig's ear of it. Um, what, what they are doing, which is really, I think, making their own lives difficult, is if you look at those tables, the description that's given to match up to each of those tariff amounts is extremely vague, um, in my view, to the point of uselessness. I mean, they the use phrases which are contradictory. It's impossible to say what evidence is needed for each of those things. And all of those ambiguities allow the Home Office to make as low an award as possible. And you know, all of the, this, this is all part of the, this is all part of a tapestry, basically, of injustice that Windrush victims have faced from the beginning. And, and that, it sort of, it keeps angering them, it keeps traumatizing them. When they're appealing these offers, they look at what they're getting and they think, my God, like, no matter what I say, no matter what evidence I give, these people are always going to think so little of me and to just not care for everything, about everything that I've been through. And, and you know how they're going to make it good it it doesn't feel i mean I, I, how, the claimants must feel like they haven't been apologized to at all because there was a big hoo-ha especially from pretty patel wasn't there about oh i apologize <laughs> and uh, this must never happen again and from the sounds of it it doesn't feel as you said obviously you can't really monetize having sort of damaged or ruined someone's life for quite so many years it's very hard to put some on that but to to it doesn't seem to be a genuine apology within it or a genuine attempt to want to make things better for them in the future yeah and the reason you know the, the reason for that is fairly straightforward they do the home office both um the home secretary and also senior civil servants at the home office they, they'll begin every conversation any meeting you have with them they'll open every answer by saying we're really really sorry but there is a point at which saying the words i'm sorry is just an insult when you match it up with the actions that the home office takes so this is really all about the hostile environment as a whole and windrush victims are very clear about this they don't view what's happened to them in a silo in any way. They understand that the hostile environment is something that runs across other areas which don't necessarily affect them. Um, but as we speak now, there's been a kerfuffle, not a kerfuffle, but there's been a series of um, events that have taken place at Napier Barracks over the weekend. Um, and the way in which the Home Office has responded to that, I think, is a perfect example of the hostile environment. So if on day one, the Home Secretary issues a statement that says, we're really, really sorry, and we're righting the wrongs, which is a phrase that they're extremely fond of, um, we're righting the wrongs which caused the scandal. And then on day two, they're issuing statements saying, this is, you know, how dare they set fire to the barracks, you know, we will take extremely strong action against it, they're insulting the British taxpayer, without doing an investigation or, or necessarily establishing who set the fire, and without acknowledging the fact that people who've been stuck in those barracks have not had access to water, heating, they've not had access to their lawyers, I mean, it's effectively an illegal detention camp, without acknowledging any of those things, then I think, you know, Windrush victims, 
along with all other people, are perfectly capable of looking at that and saying, on the one hand, you're saying that you're sorry to me, but on the other hand, I see that your behavior, whether it's to me or to everyone else involved in this, hasn't changed at all. So really, it's an insult. You think I'm stupid and you think you can just say, I'm sorry to me over and over again, and I'll just believe you. And that's another insult, really. I think the Home Office is really misunderstood. Well, not misunderstood. The Home Office thinks that people are incredibly simple and they won't see that. And that's absolutely not true. Yeah. And it's very it, it, it's another sort of the instance where they claim that they're doing one thing. But if you look at the wider picture, it's just one instance of, as you said, of a, a rather wide ranging, not only immigration policy, but general attitude that the Home Office seem to have. That's yeah. very upsetting. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a I, I guess. Well, I suppose it, it, it's immigration policy in a way. I suppose it's an attitude to anyone who's not born in the UK. And actually, sometimes it's people who are born in the UK as well. It, it's a complex attitude of othering people that, you know, for whatever reason, the Home Office wants to exclude, whether it's by race or by socioeconomic standing or by where they were born. You know, I, I, I'm not necessarily qualified to get into that in particular, but Windrush victims like, I think, anyone who's come up against the Home Office see that all of this is part of one whole, which is that there is a resistance basically to believing anything that, whether it's victims of, of the Windrush scandal or asylum seekers or people who've just had just, you know, random immigration applications rejected. There is a resistance to believing that they could possibly be telling the truth. There is a resistance to believing that um, they've suffered as badly as they say they have. And then when all of that is laid bare to them, there is a resistance to doing the right thing at the end of it anyway. So there's just, there's no getting out of it, basically. It's a sort of, <laughs> I don't know, it's a sort of malevolent force that's just in charge of your life and you're stuck with it. There's just nothing you can do to get out of it. It's really upsetting. It's, it's such a sort of clear <laughs> message that they're not wanted. It's sort of saying we don't, you know, it's, yeah. it's a very clear, we don't want you here message, isn't it? And it's, I mean, one of the things that um, I wanted to ask you about was the the independence in the in the appeal system for the compensation because um and and this is mainly sort of from information for your campaign but i had no idea of just how tricky it or how the home office oversee the appeals against the home office that, that felt really uh just i mean ridiculous yeah. to me it, it is um so i think even in the beginning when they were designing the compensation scheme they took um you know, they sort of had a consultation process and they took comments from various people who I think even at the beginning said, it's a little bit odd that you're saying you should run the compensation scheme when you're the person who did the thing that made it necessary to have a compensation scheme, you know? I mean, it, it's just a little bit strange. Um, and those fears have been borne out, absolutely. Um, we've heard from people who used to work at the Home Office that um, the exact same people who made some of those hostile environment policies and who made a lot of those decisions are now in charge of the compensation scheme. So there's not even been a break with the past. So of course this thing is doomed to fail. It's the same people bringing the same attitudes over. I mean, there's never it's never even had a chance basically. But um, as to the review system, so I've been taken to task on this because I sometimes refer to it as an appeal system and it's not. 
it's correctly called a review system. Um, there is a two-tier review process allowed for in the Windrush Compensation Scheme. Uh, and yeah, as you say, the first tier review is conducted by the Home Office. Right. And actually, wow. we don't even know. Um, we haven't had any clarity on this. We have asked this question several times, but we, we don't even know if it, it might even be the same caseworkers who made the decision um, who do the who do the reviews. I mean, I'm speculating, but um, but yeah, there's no, there's no way of saying that that's not the case. Um, should that be insufficient, and spoiler alert, it often wildly, it's often wildly insufficient, you then go to a tier two review, which is conducted by the Independent Adjudicator's Office, and I'm doing air quotes. Um, and I do that because the Independent Adjudicator's Office is actually an office of government. Um, it's called that, which is nice, but um, it, you know, it's it's got a Gov UK. Um, website address and the ind independent adjudicator is I think appointed by some combination of government departments um, and whenever we question this the answer is yes but they're not part of the home office you know I know they're part of HMRC but they're not part of the home office to which the response that always comes to my mind is but well, they're part of the same government I mean government as a whole you know the home office is part of the same government and you've got someone else in that government who's marking your work I mean of course of course that isn't going to work and of course they're going to take your side and unfortunately that is what we've seen in a lot of the um cases that we know of that have gone to tier two review and actually even more shockingly than that the quality of that tier two review has been really quite appalling the independent adjudicator is a very senior solicitor who practiced for many years um at one of the top city firms and so I personally was appalled to read a couple of letters um, with tier two review results, which, you know, are just littered with errors. They don't describe the facts correctly. They've accepted things which they shouldn't have accepted. In, in, in one case, for example, this is a really silly one, but the first paragraph opens something like, uh, we received the um, letter that you wrote to a caseworker called Robert. We didn't get his second name. And I mean, I'm thinking, why? So why didn't you ring them up and ask what the person? I mean, what are you? What is this? Like, you're the the answer that you're always given by the independent adjudicator is that we work within the framework that's been set up for us. We will review what we're asked to review and use the powers that we are told that we have. And who tells them what powers they have? The Home Office. Who sets the scope for them? The Home Office. So if a Home Office caseworker just wants to call himself Robert, the independent adjudicator says, all right, that's fine then. I don't need to, I don't need to find out who that was. I don't need to, you know, critically evaluate the decisions that Robert, second name unknown, has made. You know, that, that is a system that effectively lacks independence as far as I'm concerned. Um, but obviously the Home Office and the independent adjudicator are both extremely resistant to that criticism is is there any part of it where where home office have accountability because if the home office are judging the home office's own de decisions and then <laughs> another part of the government are judging their decisions on that based on what the home office has overseen it feels how how can you make them accountable for any of this you know is there, are there I... any outside bodies <laughs> at all at any stage in the in the process i think the short and extremely depressing answer is there isn't any internal mechanism to by which to hold them accountable. And really the only thing that's left is to take them to court. Um, and there are, I think, 
um, not that we're involved with, but there are various efforts, you know, there are some law firms who are working on things like that. Um, but the thing, the thing about this, which is really heartbreaking is that the problem, you know, the, the problem with this is that it's not set up in any way that an individual, that a claimant could navigate it or question it or handle it. You know, we're, we're in a situation where the only way to potentially get fairness out of this is to take it, is to go to court. And I mean, your average Windrush claimant who is north of 60, who isn't financially sort of, you know, particularly well off, they're not going to they're not going to go through with that. I mean they a are not going to have the funds or resources to go through with that and b they're just not going to have the willpower frankly to go through with that I mean they've already suffered so much so what is it then I mean you end up you as an as an outsider to an extent you look at this and you think you have I mean it's it's almost genius you've set up a system that is impossible to scrutinize that is impossible for individuals to challenge you on and that's actually impossible for the individuals to make the claims properly themselves and then you sit back and twiddle your thumbs and wait for it to all go wrong and by the time the dust has settled and all this is fixed a lot of those people are going to be dead you know they're in their 60s plus and people have been dying we've been sort of um banging the drum about this for a while now but even at the time that the scheme was announced in 2018 I think the Home Secretary at the time Sajid Javid um, said that he was already aware at the time of about 11 people who had been deported and had died overseas without ever being allowed to come back and get their status and I mean we are extremely conservative estimate we think at least 20 people now have died without getting any compensation at all um i mean you could (laughs) you could take an extremely cynical view which i do and say well they're just waiting this out aren't they yeah yeah oh that's so depressing it's so bleak i mean you know there was a big windrush lessons learned review um last Mm -hmm. year and and that it was after that that pretty patel made her big apology speech and all that you know that that (laughs) big stand and i mean it did was that I, I sort of already feel I know what the answer is going to be, but was that enough of an inquiry? Like, did that inquiry bring up anything that that we needed to hear, or is it? Did it barely touch the surface? Because I mean, everything you've told me so far just seems so dead ended for for everyone that, that's trying to appeal. So the review itself needs to be separated from what the Home Office has done with it and the kind of aftermath. The review itself is is actually it's it's a good piece of work, um, and it was done. It was undertaken, I think, with extremely good intentions. Um, my one sort of slight reservation about it is that uh, Wendy Williams, who um, conducted the review, is an extremely respected, you know, she's extremely respected in these circles. Um, she just stopped short of making a finding of institutional racism. I don't know why. Um, it's been speculated that early drafts of her report did say that there was a problem with institutional racism and that was watered down against her will but this is speculation you know I can't say whether that's necessarily true. The point nevertheless is that she set out a very raft of extremely clear recommendations um, saying uh, listing things that the Home Office needs to fix and it's really the follow-up, um, what the Home Office has done with the results of her review. That's really where it all kind of falls apart. Um, 
So the big thing that they have done is Wendy Williams said they needed to have a comprehensive improvement plan within, I think, six months of the publication of her review. And they've put that out. They've put out something that's called a comprehensive improvement plan. Um, but it's garbage. I mean, it's just utter garbage. One of the main, in fact, one of the main um, criticisms that uh, Wendy Williams makes and recommendations that she makes is about the hostile environment as a whole. It's what are you going to do about the hostile environment? You need to get rid of it in some way. To which the response in the comprehensive improvement plan was, well, we've already put in place measures to improve it. That's it. That's the response. So they haven't even acknowledged the problem that she's raised. And, you know, she's pulled together, I think she said something in excess of 60,000 documents, you know, that she reviewed and people that she spoke to and done this huge piece of work to which the answer is, well, I mean, that's not really a problem. And to the extent that it is, we've kind of fixed it already. Um, so I think the to, to kind of answer your question as to whether it's enough, it isn't, but that isn't Wendy Williams's fault. The issue is that I think we're way past a stage where an independent inquiry like that could suffice. I think there needs to be quite a serious political reckoning. Um, at the very least, I think there needs to be a comprehensive inquiry by the Home Affairs Select Committee into the conduct of the Home Secretary, you know, and I'm not even going to go into all the bullying stuff, but the conduct of the Home Secretary, how the Home Office as a whole deals with what they now refer to as the compliant environment, but is in fact the hostile environment. And to what extent they've actually done these things that they say they've done. Because, you know, all the time, whenever you ask the question, you'll get told, oh, there's a lot of work underway. And, you know, we've been, we've been tirelessly undertaking this and that. And then you say, okay, tell me, actually tell me one thing that you've done. The answer is, oh, but you know, there's a lot of, <laughs> it's just, you can't get a straight answer out of these people to anything. One of the problems that we had at the beginning was we started going to them with extremely specific data-based questions saying, so, you know, those stats I was talking about earlier, that, that they're good in some ways because they allow you to kind of see what's happened. But there are some key indicators that are missing there that, that would be really quite important. One that I think is quite important is the percentage of claims paid out of those that have uh, uh, percentage of claimants paid out of those who have made applications on a sort of ongoing basis because the way the categories are defined at the moment it isn't quite that that you can work out and whenever you ask them these questions it's just a silence you just get a wall of silence if if the question is too complex or it's too direct they just they just ignore it so I you know i mean one of the things I, I've, I've actually asked too many interviewees this in the last few years, unfortunately, and, and there's not really, and we've got to be careful in how we answer it, but like, do you feel that this is, because I, I find it very hard to work out if this is malice and a, and a real disregard for people, or if it's a sort of incompetence and laziness at the idea of doing proper both. work. It's a, it's both. I, I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, so I don't obviously believe that every civil servant who works for the home office is just purely malicious. I, I you know, that just can't be true. And, you know, at the lower levels, like we occasionally deal with people who seem like they are trying, they're trying their hardest within a difficult system. I think there is an institutional malice, though, and I'm not sure if this is, um, I don't know that much about the other government departments, but this is, it's something that actually relates to the character of the Home Office outside. So there's the political side of the Home Office, which is determined by whoever's in power at any given time, obviously for the past five million years that's been the same party but 
Separately to that, to that, there is the institution of there's a civil service institution of the Home Office and its character and how it looks at migrants and you know uh, policing and stuff like that. And it's a uniquely negative organization. I don't think I'm thinking back to the last time Labour was in charge. And actually the Home Office has always been quite a negative and harsh and bullying type of organization. I think, you know, the political leadership does matter, but the Home Office as an institution, yeah, you know, I think there is more than sufficient grounds to say there is a kind of institutional malice as a sort of refusal to accept that human beings, um, human beings that you may not think are particularly important, nevertheless have rights and are entitled to live with dignity and to live well. It's just, you know, it's just something that they refuse to accept. And I, I don't, I don't know where you go from there. I just think, you know, what more can I, what more can I say to someone who would put out a statement, you know, two hours after there's been a fire, there's been a life-threatening incident. What more can I say to a person who would respond to that by saying, oh, this is really bad for British taxpayers. Like, this is really serious. How, how dare they do that to British taxpayers? I mean, what, you know, I just, you know, what, what is the nexus? Like, how do we communicate with someone who's so broken that that's their response? Like, yeah, and it was all the know. concern for army barracks as though, I mean, you know, for, for my limited understanding, army barracks are not, they're also underfunded. The army haven't had yeah, enough supplies in there. And, you know, exactly. it's, yeah. it, this weird, it's all such, such jingoistic, uh, just whistling yeah. wasn't it for for they've ruined the yeah. army barracks that we weren't that we were in a terrible condition and we weren't putting proper yeah. toilets in how dare these people that probably didn't do it do it because i've said that it, yeah, it's just how, how, such a know, horrific yeah. uh statement yeah. hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And we'll be back with Ramir in a minute, but first... 
I was trying to think about what might be useful in the middle bit this week, and I very nearly did a whole big bit on how and why the EU almost made a hard border in Ireland and blocked vaccine deliveries, but ultimately you'd have nodded off several times throughout me pointing out there was a procedure to it all that would have taken at least a month with possibilities to withdraw it, and the big game really is that they can because it's in the withdrawal agreement and the British government agreed, and look, no one wants to pay attention to these things, then it's not my fault, is it? Hello? Oh, sorry, you fell asleep. Well, I'm glad I didn't do that bit. So, look, uh, wake up. Hello. Uh, instead, with Boris Johnson insisting the government did everything they could to minimise loss and suffering, I thought I'd list all the things they did to fulfil that intention, because sometimes it's hard to remember every single way in which the government went above and beyond to make sure the deaths were only over 80,000 people more than the predicted worst-case scenario last spring. They really did try so very hard. So here in full glory, the step-by-step guide to how the government definitely beat the coronavirus and saved everyone and the economy, except for how they didn't and also definitely didn't. The first thing that makes us know how seriously the Prime Minister took the coronavirus was when he didn't attend any of the five initial COBRA meetings, starting in January 2020, about how to deal with the new pandemic and what protective equipment they were sending to China. And we know that this means that Johnson was uh, treating the virus very seriously, as by not even being there, there's a high chance that those meetings were conducted properly and contained actually useful information. Michael Gove insisted that most Cobra meetings don't have the Prime Minister at them and I'm sure even if he insists on attending they just leave some Lego on a table outside and he rarely makes it in the door. Public Health England moved the risk level to the British public from very low to low on January the 22nd and it was only in early February they thought it might be best to advise Brits in China to return home if they can because germs obviously don't travel on planes due to a lack of passports. The next thing that made us know that Boris Johnson was taking this seriously and doing all he could was the Prime Minister's speech at the Old Royal Naval College in Greenwich in early Feb when he let us all know that he'd heard about Covid by mentioning that the virus might cause a panic and suggesting Britain was ready to take off its Clark Kent spectacles, leap into the phone booth and emerge with its cloak flowing as the supercharged champion of the right of the population of Earth to buy and sell freely among each other. Obviously he knew what was most important then was commerce because in the early stages it was believed the coronavirus could only be transmitted to people who didn't like bargains and we had to follow the science. On February the 28th, the first confirmed British victim of COVID died on an anchored cruise ship and British authorities had confirmed the first case of the illness had been passed on inside the country but they didn't want to be too nosy and check where that person had been or who they'd licked or coughed into the face of because goddammit, we're not a nanny state, OK? And the government really care. In early March, Boris Johnson knew how serious the virus was because he suggested on morning television that we could all take the virus on the chin or we could take the measures we need to to support the NHS but it was best to strike a balance between the two. Of course, COVID can't be transmitted via just your chin as you'd have to hail it and if it's on your chin it's not in your mouth so actually if we'd all listened to the prime minister then and covered our entire bodies except for our chins we'd be okay johnson also said we were had to sing happy birthday at the sinks he loves to celebrate washing his hands of things then on march the 16th the government had watched beijing wuhan and other chinese cities endure lockdown for over a month and italy for several weeks and france announced they were about to do the same with rising infections and death tolls worldwide so very sensibly matt hancock announced that the uk would also do a lockdown but not for another week because you don't want to rush these things in case people have important errands to run first like being one of thousands and thousands of people at the horse races their friend ran or collecting all of the toilet rolls and filling your spare room with pasta shells johnson told everyone very clearly that they should work from home if they could but they didn't have to and they should avoid pubs and restaurants but they'll still be open and that's smart as by closing them then everyone probably just had congregated inside hospitals for fun and that wouldn't have helped the nhs smart even though europe had closed its borders to all travelers outside the block and even the us which was at the time led by radioactive hemorrhoid even they'd closed their borders to all european countries except the uk our government though sensibly didn't do any of that as otherwise everyone who wanted to go on holiday might have gone to a hospital instead and that would have been bad as they had to protect the nhs and save lives 
Then a few days later, the government decided maybe they should close schools, but not for a few days. And then also pubs, restaurants and gyms, but only after you'd been there. And you should only go outside once a day for food, but you don't need to wear a mask because if anything, it's harder to save people if you can't see their smiles. Then Johnson made a big effort of saying it was okay to shake everyone's hands in a hospital. And then he bravely got the coronavirus where throughout he was in good spirits, even when he was unconscious and on a ventilator. And then obviously fought off COVID because he's strong and British or something. And he only took a whole month off work, which is less than when he wanted to avoid talking to people whose houses had been flooded. Matt Hancock also got the virus, but no one cared. Meanwhile, the government also making sure all NHS staff had enough PPE by ordering it from anywhere they could, including loads of friends of theirs who'd never supplied PPE before or had any experience in doing so, but were so eager to help, they only stepped up for millions and millions of pounds. Matt Hancock also made sure his very good friend, who was very good at horse races, was allowed to help too, as she was really keen to run the Test and Trace app, and so keen she only needed £12 billion to find one that didn't work, so the government could make sure the next one definitely did. Very important to get these errors out of the way early. At the end of April, Johnson announced we had passed the peak of COVID, because he'd had it now, and so he was almost certainly fine, and everything would be back to normal by Christmas. Oh God, we're only at April. Okay, so let's speed up. Then they spent billions on antibody tests, which didn't work, but that was good, as now we know they didn't, so we wouldn't use them. Then it was discovered Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's special advisor, drove all the way from London to Barnard Castle while riddled with coronavirus, and the government said that was fine because he was just being a good dad, and it's important to know that good dads can't get the virus, which must have been why Johnson got it. Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick also broke lockdown rules, but it's only because he wanted to see his parents, and that saved someone else having to. Then the government made sure that because everyone had been frustrated with being stuck indoors for months, that they'd get the chance to travel if they wanted a Covid test, because your nearest one would be hundreds and hundreds of miles away. With all the music festivals cancelled, it was very thoughtful to make everyone drive to a car park, have things shoved up their nose, and then find out days later if they'd caught something. If they were really lucky, the results would have been lost, and then you wouldn't have had any proof of the event like a true festival experience. Better yet, whether you had a positive test or not, the test and trace app still wasn't working, so you saved the embarrassment of all your friends knowing win. Then the Prime Minister eased the lockdown and he could do all the exercise outside that you liked and you should definitely go back to work as offices would be safe from Covid because it finds your chat by the water cooler as boring as everyone else does. Oh and schools must come back um, because they're definitely safe because in the walls there's like magic that kills Covid or something and then the shops could open. You had to wear masks on public transport but not in any shops or anything because it was just in case Covid got on at a different stop. And you can still travel abroad but only if when you came back you had to quarantine for 14 days but absolutely no one would check because we're not a nanny state and it's really nice that they trust people. Oh, and then there was Eat Out to Help Out, where the Chancellor told everyone to go to restaurants to help them, and that was nice because then people could catch COVID somewhere other than the workplace, and it was good to have variety and potentially a last meal. Oh, and now you can all meet outside, even though scientists are saying there'd be a second wave if people weren't sensible over the summer, but the government very kindly thought, hey, sun's out, bum's out, and aren't those scientists such party poopers? No, if you're travelling to UK from a whole load of places uh, where our friends live, then don't worry about quarantine. Uh, So, then they withdrew from the EU's coronavirus vaccine programme, and then banned travel to Spain, but only for a bit, and then locked down bits of northern England but nowhere else. 50 million masks bought for the NHS were deemed unsafe and had to be binned. In August you then had to wear masks in museums and cinemas but not while you're eating or drinking or shouting or whatever. Schools reopened. Operation Moonshot happened because it was nice to have some hope. Oh, Operation Moonshot's gone now because it sounded silly so let's not have that. Let's not have tighter restrictions that'll be fine but pubs should close at 10pm because then Covid can't get you at night unless you invite it in. Oh wait, maybe that's vampires. And then Johnson got the restrictions wrong in a press briefing, briefing that hey, everyone's human, it's all okay that we don't understand 
understand it because even he doesn't. And then definitely there was no lockdown because there's a tier system. Oh, no, wait, now there's a lockdown because the tier system didn't work. But at least we've amended our errors and learned from our mistakes. But now the lockdown's over. Let's go back to the tier system because, hey, it was fun and it was like numbers or something. It's OK because at Christmas you can all have a lovely time with all of your family. Oh, no, you shouldn't have mixed at Christmas. And we definitely won't do that again. Now it's nowhere near Christmas and you've already done it. And quick, all the schools must go back. No, wait, what are you doing? Go home. And OK, we'll close the borders now if you insist. So as you can see with that very definitive guide, the government did absolutely everything they could and it's definitely not their fault that so many have died. And with that sort of capability, we should probably question how they all managed to get dressed in the morning. But don't worry, they're very, very optimistic about the summer holidays. And now, back to Ramya. I was just going to say this must... I mean, how... How concerned are you that, that think something like the Windrush scandal is going to happen again? Because it feels obviously that, that you know the Windrush generation were very, was a very specific uh, group of people that came over during a very specific time when they when when they were asked over to help. You know, and, and we might not have something that affects such a specific group because of the nature of the history of Windrush. But but there must be a worry that that groups of people are going to be targeted again, or suddenly their status will be forgotten. Or I mean, you know, something in the case of even EU citizens now that we've post-Brexited. Mm. What's, what's your kind of concern about the, the future and how the Home uh, Office are acting? You know, it's never going to change, I think. As it stands, based on what we've seen and based on the fact that nobody really seems to be interested in overhauling the entire structure, um, it's never going to change. I mean, there's a really important sort of subset to the Windrush generation that doesn't get as much coverage, which is um, a cohort of people who uh, came from Commonwealth countries, such as in particular Nigeria, um, who had indefinite leave to remain based on the immigration laws of that time, uh, who returned home to, well, returned to their birth country, to Nigeria, um, and unbeknownst to them, their indefinite leave to remain lapsed um, because they were away for more than two years. And when they tried to come back, they were rejected. They were said no. They were told no, you can't come back. And so there's actually a huge cohort of people who have been stranded overseas. And we know of at least five or six people who fall into this um, into this bucket, as it were. Um, they're not even considered part of the Windrush generation just yet. Although it is actually the the more we look into it. They are. They actually satisfy quite a lot of the characteristics of what the government says is a would would qualify as a as a victim of the Windrush scandal. Most of those people remain stuck overseas. A lot of them have had children who are now also overseas and don't have the right to be here because their parents don't have the right to be here. Um, most of those people, I don't think, are even aware that there is a compensation scheme, and you know the the. The, the sort of the spread of this thing is so much bigger than we know. And it's not even a question of is something like this going to happen again? Something like this is still happening. And with again, with the compensation scheme, something like this is happening right now. It, effectively, what I'm saying is the Windrush scandal isn't over. It, it's going to plod on. It's going to go on and on and on until some Home Secretary or some Prime Minister decides, right, this hostile environment thing, we just need to gut the whole thing and start afresh. It's, it's, it's just not, you know, there's, just, there's no easy topical solution. We're not even, we haven't even dealt with aspects of the Wendra scandal yet. So, you know, the, there's almost no question, there's, there's almost no point saying 
do we think it's going to happen again? I mean, that's not a, you know, it's a good question. I'm not, I'm not having a go at you, but, um, but yeah, are you getting the feeling from any anywhere in the political sphere that there's want to change and want to to reform this? Because you know, it feels to me, and, and again, it's my my personal opinion, but it feels to me across the, you know, the, uh, all the well, not all the parties. It feels unfair to say the Greens, but who I, who I don't know their opinion. <laughs> but, but across the main parties, it doesn't feel like there's uh, any different opinion, really. I, I personally, my view is yeah, but that's that you're right about that. I don't think. Um, I don't think the main opposition party is, I don't think they've said enough or done enough. And actually, it's important to point out that the hostile environment, although we associate it most commonly with Theresa May and the Conservatives, um, policies which very much resemble the hostile environment were also in place under Labour. So Labour, you know, Labour hasn't got clean hands on this. Like, this is a, a, a serious problem that has existed for a long time and has and has to do with basically a kind of inbuilt view that the public reject immigrants or reject the idea that we would want to spend anything at all on protecting the rights of people, you know, who come from anywhere else or who look different from us or are black or brown or whatever, that there is this institutional rejection of that. Um, but yeah, no, you're right at the moment. I mean, so the Home Affairs, um, the Home Affairs Select Committee has done some good work on questioning the Home Office about the compensation scheme. Um, in fact, I think they put out a letter last week with a set of very specific questions um, about some of the data that the Home Office put out. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, there might be there might be, you know, a few people in Labour who are seriously committed to an overhaul of the Home Office as a whole. But I've certainly never got the impression that it's something for which there is a lot of political impetus that it's something that people particularly care about, which is, you know, the only way to change that is going to be us shouting about it, not just us Windrush Lives, I mean, us people on the whole, um, making an absolute stink about it. I mean, I think, you know, if there's one positive thing that's come out of maybe the last 10 years, it's the knowledge uh, and proof that actually direct action and people making a lot of noise about things they don't like can have an effect. And so, you know, here's, here's hoping, but at the moment, I don't see any big political opposition. No, I mean, it was one of the things I, I, I did think with the Windrush scandal when it first came out and maybe I've maybe I've got this wrong but it felt like the public were on the side of of the people that were affected but it felt like there was an outrage about it and and that was really a, a, a relief to see I think considering some of the other mm. the general sentiment about uh you know immigration policies everything else that were going on at the same time um so yeah I always feel that there's hope in that sense that maybe people yeah. were appalled so it probably sounded extremely depressing. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I think actually people, individual human beings, I think are actually a lot more sensitive to it and have much more complex and fair views on it than what happens when you lump everything together into who votes for who into sort of broad demographics. I think actually, yeah, you're right. When the scandal first broke, there was broad um, outrage, I think, across across different sort of parts of society um, and I'm defining this in my mind by people who read 
by what publication people read basically but <laughs> yeah. across the across the sort of newspapers um as, as a sort of example of that across the newspapers there was outrage that this, that this could possibly have happened um because you know a lot of people saw the connection to world war ii and people of an older generation are quite you know world war ii is quite important in their minds and you know the efforts that were made and the efforts that were made in rebuilding the country after that People who, you know, might have sort of less accommodating views on immigration as a whole would nevertheless be quite annoyed that people who helped to fix the country after World War II were being treated in this way. So, yeah, I think on an individual level, there was a lot of outrage. You know, it's something that's very hard to keep in the news. I mean, I, frankly, I was surprised when you wanted to speak to us because, you know, we, we have we have a hard time getting people to pay attention to this, partly because it's quite a technical issue at this stage. What we're sort of fighting with the Home Office about and the criticisms that we make are extremely, um, they don't lend themselves to easy reading. It takes an amount of focus, an amount of knowledge of the data um, to really be invested in it. But, you know, I think... I think if we manage to break through that and I think if we manage to convey the message and to show the people who are still being affected by this, then, yeah, I think, you know, individual individuals and out in the out in broader society, I think, would still be shocked by the way these people are being treated. And I suppose, yeah, that's who we have to appeal to now, because, as you say, I don't think there's much political impetus um, to really fixing this properly. Well, to to ask about something a bit more positive, what you're doing, I think, is very positive. What the Windrush Lives Cafe is doing, very <laughs> positive, and and you are doing something which is amazing. And um, I was wondering if you could sort of explain to listeners exactly what you're what you do and how you help claimants, and also, I think, most importantly, what listeners can do as well, and what what mm. people can do that do want to help. Um, you know, to to keep this in the news or to or to help the people that are still not receiving any compensation and still suffering from what happened to them. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll explain it to you um, as it happened. So Windrush Lives is a really strange animal. Um, this all happened because um, in the middle of last year, I was on furlough um, because of coronavirus and I was involved in some Black Lives Matter sort of campaign work and just very randomly happened upon a newspaper article about an individual, about one particular Windrush claimant and um, the difficulties that he was having. And through a series of events, got in touch with him and set up a GoFundMe, just a fundraiser for him. And as we started talking to him and trying to boost the fundraiser, um, by then me and a few other friends, we set up a Twitter account to sort of boost the fundraiser. Um, and all of a sudden, we started getting contacted by other people who were in the same position as this one person. And it snowballed so quickly that we had to step back and say, right, this can't just be a fundraiser for one person anymore. This is a serious problem and many, many people are affected by it. And that was the point at which it stopped being a fundraiser and started, become an, started becoming an advocacy campaign, which is basically what it still is now. Um, so broadly speaking, we do a couple of things. Um, the main body of Windrush Lives is a network of claimants some of whom have already been through the compensation process, some of whom are still fighting the Home Office. Um, and it's a sort of, I guess you could call it a support network. Um, and it's been 
extremely helpful from what I can tell. It's been extremely helpful to everyone in that network to know that there are other people going through the exact same thing as them and to have transparency. Because I think one of the difficulties with fighting the home office is if you think you're alone and if you think, if you believe what they say to you, which is that what you're going through is in some way because of you or because of shortcomings in your application. Now, when you get a bunch of people together and you start looking at what the Home Office says to all of them across the board, you, you see the pattern and you realise, actually, it's the only way to break the sort of gaslighting, which is, you see, actually, this is how they're treating everyone. This is not because of me. I didn't do anything. This is the Home Office. And I think just having that transparency and that knowledge gives people a lot of fight. It gives them a lot of determination to fight the office that they're given and to pursue the home office for the right, you know, for the compensation that they're actually owed. So that's the support network. Um, we now have the ability, we didn't at the beginning, but we now have the ability to refer people for legal assistance. So we don't provide any legal assistance ourselves. We are just a sort of advocacy campaign organization, but we are connected to the Windrush Justice Clinic, which is an excellent, excellent project. Um, which is run out of a university law clinic. So primarily University of Westminster, University of Greenwich, and definitely a few others that I've forgotten, unfortunately. But um, it's overseen by um, the director of the program, someone called Anna Steiner at the University of Westminster. And basically, if you have um, a claim and you wish to make an application to the Windrush Compensation Scheme, then we encourage people in that position to contact us and we'll refer them to the Windrush Justice Clinic. Because although the Home Office says that you should be able to do this on your own, you cannot. I mean, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be cruel, but don't take that on its face. I think people do need assistance to deal with this. Um, those are really the two main things that we do. We do bits of ad hoc fundraising for specific individuals who are having, you know, an, an extremely hard time, whether it's, I mean, it's usually financially, to be honest. Um, and one of those people, in fact, the person who started all of this off um, is Anthony Williams. Um, and he's the person I've referred to previously when I said this is how I got into it. Um, Anthony's, I've just remembered, apropos of um, the conversation that we were having about Napier Barracks just now, Anthony was the soldier um for many years um when all of this happened he lost his status and as a result of the hostile environment policy of telling employers to check up on status and to fire people who couldn't show their status as a result of that he lost his um he lost his employment um, and he lost access to medical services. Uh, he lost access to the NHS, basically. And because he couldn't get registered with a GP, he couldn't get registered with a dentist. And over a period of three years, he lost all of his teeth. Oh he got a gum infection and it, it spread and he lost all of his teeth. And um, this is such a harrowing story. He became more and more isolated and he was basically living by himself in his flat without you know, insulation, without heating terrified of answering the door, answering anyone ringing the doorbell because he thought it might be the Home Office coming to deport him. This is someone who was in the military, who served the country. Um, and I mean, I, you know, when I first made contact with him in the middle of last year, he was extremely depressed. Um, and, you know, he didn't even realise, I don't think, just how much 
the Home Office had wrecked him. And I'm I'm being very particular about saying that. I don't, you know, I don't wish to mince my words at all. The Home Office wrecked his life. And, you know, through all of this sort of advocacy and campaigning work, and he's now a very important member of our network as well, through all of this work, I think he's come to see that he and so many others are a victim of this hostile environment policy. But I think the nicest thing that's come out of Windrush Lives is seeing people like him sort of gaining renewed vigour and recognising their own agency to do something about it. Because I think the worst thing that can happen in a situation like this is to just say, right, I'm defeated. You have defeated me. That's it. I'm done. And actually, what we're seeing is is when claimants come through and join the network and start talking to other people and they get fired up, that really helps. And it pushes the Home Office to, to at least look at their cases and to deal with them. And so so yeah, so we encourage people to get in touch with us. I mean, we are only, we're pro bono, we do this on a voluntary basis in addition to our main jobs, but we we put a lot of work into it and we, you know, we get back to everyone. We never leave, we don't ever leave anyone hanging. We don't ever leave anyone without a response because that to me is the worst thing that can happen if you're dealing with the home office. Um, I was just going to say with that uh, with the fundraiser fantasy that's currently going as well I think one of the things I hadn't realized when I was reading it is it's it's not just to you know to to help him go through the claim it's to help him survive until any compensation comes through isn't it because he's got no income and no source of benefits or anything which is just very upsetting yeah it is so his situation has um his situation has clarified a little bit now. Um, he is in a better position financially than he was, but you're absolutely right. Um, he hasn't his of his claim that matter isn't settled yet. It's it's more advanced than it was when we first began fundraising for him. Um, but it's it's in no way closed out. And um, the the thing that I actually I haven't mentioned this yet, but the Home Office actually still doesn't know how many people are going to come through the compensation scheme. So the original estimate was 15,000, and this was Sajid Javid's estimate. Um, That was, for reasons which remain unknown, um, reduced to 11,500 pursuant to an impact assessment in the early part of last year. We've asked them why, and they haven't said. Um, But even by the lower of those two estimates, there's up to 11,500 people who are going to make a claim. And if you look at the stats less than 2,000 have made a claim, fewer than 2,000 have made a claim so far. So the vast majority of people who are affected by this haven't actually gone through this yet. So the (laughs) sort of A, fixing the scheme for everyone is obviously, um, you know, it's obviously extremely important. But B, I think when we talk about how long it's taken for someone like Anthony, even in his position of having, you know, having been been in the services and having had a lot of media attention as a result of that, it's taken that long and it's still not fixed. So what what's going to happen to the other, you know, to the other ten and a half thousand people who haven't put their claims in yet? I mean, we can't possibly be functioning um, on the basis that each and every one of them is going to have to form the basis of the story by Amelia Gentleman and, you know, have a media campaign in order to get their compensation. I mean, it just doesn't work. So I'm sorry, I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's okay. Wildly um, carried away. No, well, all I was, what I was going to ask you, which I think is, is probably a, a very, you know, brings us to it nicely in a way is that obviously you know listeners or people that want to help uh can obviously donate to these campaigns but uh, you know is part of it 
helping people be aware that that, that that Windrush Lives exist because if we've got all these people that haven't made a claim, there's a lot of people obviously aren't even aware of, of yeah. how to do this. And, and what, yeah, I was going to ask, what are the best ways that, that we can help? Okay, so there are two things. I mean, firstly, uh, there are some other voices which are extremely important that I think everyone should listen to. Um, by far the foremost expert on Windrush legal issues in general um, is Jacqueline McKenzie. Um, she is a senior partner in a firm called Jacqueline, uh, sorry, in a firm called McKenzie Bote and Pope. Um, she is a sort of recognized, established expert on this. She gave evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee in December. Um, I'd follow her on Twitter if I was a listener who was interested in this issue because, you know, there isn't anything about this that she doesn't know. Um, there are lots of excellent barristers. Garden Court Chambers covers this issue a lot. Um, there's someone called Emma Harris at Goldsmith Chambers. Um, there's someone called Alistair McKenzie, who I'm particularly fond of his Twitter feed, um, at uh, Doughty Street, um, who cover a lot of hostile environment issues. And I think understanding the hostile environment and how it cuts into Windrush is, is a really important thing. And I think it's something that everybody needs to understand because it isn't, it really isn't just a Windrush issue. It's, it, it runs across a whole variety of things. Um, the Windrush Justice Clinic, um, as I mentioned earlier, and um, also the Good Law Project um, has set aside some funding to deal with Windrush cases and, um, you know, always worth looking at and always worth donating to. They do excellent work. But to the question, I think the, the, the kind of core of the question of what is it that people can do? I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think the answer is actually it's, it's a bit of an odd one. But the answer is, if you're someone who's listening to this podcast, then I think you're probably the kind of person who has a political identity, or at least thinks you do. And what you can do is make the hostile environment and the home office, make that a key part of your political identity. Just imbibe the issue, basically, and make changing that a part of your baseline political views. Because what it, what it, what it comes out to is this, I think different people can contribute to these things in different ways. And I, you know, I couldn't possibly give you an exhaustive list of what everyone could, everyone could do with their skills. But I think the reality is these things occur organically to people when they care about them. So what you can do is care about it and commit it and, and commit to it being part of your core politics. And that's certainly how this organization came up. I mean, I have, I'm sort of involved in the legal sector. And so the approach that we took to it was slightly legalistic, both on Twitter and in terms of the campaign itself. But there are academics who are involved in it, for example, and their approach has been to, has been to say, well, maybe we could do a study around this. You know, maybe we could publish some, some articles um, looking at intergenerational trauma, looking at how this is similar to trauma that might be experienced in other contexts. So that actually, the reality is it will occur organically to you if this is a core part of your political identity. It will occur to you how you can make noise about it and how you can create awareness about it with your particular skills. So really, what you have to do is commit to it. No, that's a brilliant answer. It's a brilliant answer. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much to Ramya. Um, you can find the Windrush Lives campaign at windrushlives.co.uk, which has details of the campaign, but also resources and ways to contact the team if you or your family have been affected by the Windrush scandal and inadequate, sorry, I mean absolutely bullshit compensation scheme. Uh, they're also on Twitter at Windrush Lives and on Facebook too.
Most importantly, as I mentioned earlier, their current fundraiser to help claimant Anthony Williams um, survive while he appeals to the Home Office to be eligible for compensation. Uh, that can be found on GoFundMe, but of course I'll pop the link in the podcast blurb and I'll tweet it out over the week too. Please, please help him if you can. Okay, uh, next week it's the return of the brilliant Emily Kenway on her new book, The Truth About Modern Slavery. But then after that, I will still need more guests. More! Feed me interesting interviewees. I mean, don't feed me them. That would make them very hard to interview. And the podcast would just be full of terrible eating noises and my stomach rumbling. So, I mean, suggest podcasts to me or subjects to interview people about. And if you want to do that, you can, of course, do that at Parpolbro on Twitter, the massively underused Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or why not design a poster for of outdated 50s stereotypes with your message on and then have to retract it very quickly after realising that no one thinks like that anymore but I'll still see your recommendation as it's shared everywhere by people calling you a disgrace but also won't take your recommendation seriously because I'll just assume it's of someone who wears brill cream and slaps people they don't know on the bum while smoking a cigar. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you tons uh, and other various weight measurements for listening. And should you have even vaguely enjoyed the show, or at the very least not minded it enough to scroll something rude about it on a public toilet wall, then please consider spending 30 seconds of your precious life minutes recommending it to someone you think is a reasonable human being who likes using their ears to absorb politics shouting. Give the show a five-star review on one of the many, many endless podcast apps that now exist, and possibly even lob a penny or five at the Kofi Patreon or ACAR supporter sites. But don't lob it too hard and you might chip it and I've got no idea where I'll get another one during lockdown. Appreciation stations to Acast, my brother last sceptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when it's discovered that the door-to-door testers for the South African variant have single-handedly spread it to every home in Surrey. But when we find out that also includes Dominic Rabs, everyone starts clapping for the testers every Thursday at 8pm. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Big Markets. Need big things? Come to Big Markets. We've got big stuff like big onions, big socks, big flossing sticks, big boxes full of things we're too scared to check on, big mistakes, big wastes of money, big journeys of food that will pointlessly pollute the planet so you can have something tasteless, big load of shit straight from Liz Truss. Big Markets for when you fucked all possibility of getting reasonably sized things. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. 
ACAST.com.